All right, so that's one of those doozy ones, right? There we go. Michael Bird, who's a, a commentator, has uh, written a commentary on Romans that came out in the last few years. He identifies this section of Romans, this uh, Romans chapter 7, uh, in taking our section, our reading, but even going back to verse 7 itself, by saying this. He says, it's that moment in the airline flight where your plane goes through a bit of turbulence and the pilot tells you to fasten your seatbelts. It's time to fasten your exegetical seatbelts because this is where it gets bumpy. All right, so Romans 7 is where it gets bumpy. Apparently, he's not alone. He's not the first person either with this assessment. Philip Melanchthon, who was a collaborator with Martin Luther uh, during the Reformation, observed this. He said, this part of the Pauline epistle must be pondered in a particularly careful manner because the ancients also sweated greatly in explaining these things, and few of them treated them skillfully and correctly. That's kind of a bold statement. So we're going to sweat a little bit this morning, not because of the sun apparently, but we're going to sweat a little bit with Romans chapter 7. So let's jump right in with the hopes that we might actually get this one right. Big hopes there. One of the first things that comes into uh, view in our reading is a particular rhetorical device that the author uses here. At first glance, it appears to be autobiographical. So we hear all those I statements. We think it must be autobiographical. The writer here is speaking of himself in the first person, I this and I that. And so with that reading in mind, we hear Paul himself confess to such things as not understanding his own actions, first part of verse 15. It's not going, or not doing what he wants. That's the second part of verse 15. So from bad to worse. Doing the very thing he hates, knowing that good does not dwell in him, not doing the good he wants, but instead the evil he does, not wants, is what he does. And so it sounds like this guy is having a real rough morning about it uh, in talking about his situation. Does it feel like I'm just cracking up here? Yeah. I'm totally eating jokes and I'm cracking up here. If I talk slower, does that help? Okay. Connection? I'm connected to this pack. Am I connected to this pack? Yeah. All right, there we go. So following that line of reading here, we ourselves might hear these words as articulating the Christian's own struggle with sin. Perhaps even our own struggle. We might even read it autobiographically for ourselves as we hear this text. That Paul's words here give voice to our own frustrations at some level. And to know a giant like Paul had these kind of same struggles that maybe you and I face, that of course can bring a certain measure of comfort amidst an otherwise dismal situation. Such notables in history as Augustine, uh, Aquinas, Luther, Calvin, uh, those are some big names, right, if you know some of those names. Those are big names in theology. They've all arrived at a similar position when looking at Romans 7, so seeing this as kind of autobiographical, as well as some uh, very notable folks in recent years. Uh, if you're familiar with Cranfield, who has probably one of the best technical commentaries on Romans, and Dunn as well, who writes for Word Biblical Commentary, which that series by itself is super technical but also a whole host of Romans 7 inspired poets and songwriters online that I visited this last week, including a 14-year-old young man uh, who wrote a poem. That each one of these is, is following uh, this path of interpretation. And so there's quite a following here. But there's a problem with that interpretation. And that problem is Romans 7 itself. Note how just outside and in the run-up to our reading, Paul will confess in verse 14 for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold into slavery under sin. Yet one chapter earlier, he's going to assert 
that we have been freed from sin. We see that in chapter 6. That seems to be in conflict with the aforementioned interpretive tradition. Or notice how the I figure in our text struggles to keep the law. Okay, a couple points we see that in verses 22 and 25. Yet Christians, like Paul, are said to know, now be free from the law. Yet another conflict. So perhaps this section isn't recounting the struggles of a Jesus follower after all. But if not these, the question, of course, emerges for us is, who are we talking about here? Who is this I figure? Who exactly does the writer have in mind after all? Now remember what I said, there's a rhetorical device that's being used here, and Paul may be using this device that's called prosopopoeia, all right? Scrabble players, you're welcome. All right? <laughs> but it literally means speech in character. It's a figure of speech in which an imaginary or absent person is represented as speaking or acting. And so what happened here this last week is I was like, I'd never heard that term before. And so I was looking for examples online for this. And it's actually quite common. Shows up in ancient literature, but also shows up in folks a lot closer to our own era. Now, this is not going to seem close to our era. But Abe Lincoln actually used it at one point in one of his speeches. I was reading a speech by Abraham Lincoln this week in the sermon preparation. The places all go for us. Not just you two. We'll go to Abe Lincoln. But here in Romans, Michael Byrd, going back to that commentator again, he observes, it may reflect the experience of a person or class of persons whom Paul is impersonating here as a way of making a point about the struggles of trying to keep the law and the law's inability to restrain sinful desires. Those persons are represented here, or they're representative by the eye. But also perhaps there's a composite figure here, that this eye figure is representing folks like Adam and Israel, Anybody who was a Jewish proselyte who came to the Jewish faith, or even Paul himself, in looking back to his own time when he himself was under the law and recognized the struggles that exist there. Here is, of course, looking back, who were once bound in the law would recognize their own ability to keep it and could then identify themselves with I. And I imagine there's a number of folks in that ancient audience in Rome who heard that and were nodding their heads saying, yep, yep, that, that's me. That's where I was at. Which leads us to ponder an emerging question all of this. And of course, I'm gonna offer it here with greater clarity by framing the question in the style of the late singer-songwriter, Edwin Starr. What would be a Jimmy Sermon without a musical reference? Edwin Starr, this is framed in Edwin Starr. If you know Edwin Starr, great. If you don't, well, here you go. You're in for a treat. Here's the question. Law, who, huh. yeah. What is it good for? Come Absolutely on now. nothing. That's right, that's right, all right. Well, that's not exactly, that's not exactly the conclusion that Paul is going to draw here. That's what, where he arrives. Instead, in verse 12, Paul notes, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and just and good. Hardly what you would conclude if you were saying that it meant absolutely nothing. And in verse 13, Paul is quick to dismiss any claims that is the law itself that brought death to him. So if not the law, what then is the problem? Now, if you're hearing a lot of questions here this morning in this sermon, you have a better understanding of the turbulence we talked about at the beginning, right? There's a lot of questions that start to emerge and you start going, what's going on? New rabbit hole, new rabbit hole, new rabbit hole. You keep going down and down and down into more and more questions here. And it points down to a deep, deep problem 
that resides with all of us. It's not just a problem that's meant just for folks that were maybe Jewish and following the law or people that became Jewish and started to follow the law. It wasn't just for people living in ancient times, but it's also for us moderns. And that finger points in verse 13, the second part of that verse, to this. It points squarely at sin. And not just sin as some kind of individual moral failing. It's not like I just, I stole a cookie off the table and that's it. That's what it's talking about here. But rather it talks about sin as a power that lays siege. Or as our text puts it, that dwells in the person. We see that in verse 17, 20, and 23 in case you miss it the first two times. Eugene Peterson's The Message gives us a bit more of the punch of what this sin power is capable of and how it dwells in us when he uses such descriptions as sin's prison, sabotaging my best intentions. Something has gone wrong deep within me and gets the better of me every time. Another translation released in the last few years that uses language styles and conceptual imagery that would be familiar to indigenous populations here in North America, what's called the First Nations version, translates sin as broken ways, a rather fitting image when one hears in verse 17, it is the broken ways that have taken root in my heart that hold me to this wrong path. There's something broken there. Of course, this taking root is just the beginning. Commentator Ernst Kassemann describes the flesh here as the workshop of sin. There's an article I read this last week by Mike Burton. Uh, on It's located at uh, mbird.com. And the first line caught my attention, and I think it might catch your attention too when you hear these words, that these words were actually put together in a sentence. So what do a 1970s Finnish disco instruction video and Romans 7 have in common? Right? <laughs> Answer, Ryan Adams, Halloween Head. Has anybody heard the song Halloween Head? Is anybody here a fan of Halloween Head now? Well, you're welcome. The Halloween Head video itself is something to behold. And believe me, I watched it. But the artist's definition of what constitutes a Halloween Head is one that is full of tricks and treats. A life we might imagine to include bad ideas followed by bad choices. Burton's conclusion is that the eye figure in Romans 7 has a Halloween head. So if you get anything this morning, you and I are plagued with this. We have Halloween heads. Go tell a friend that this week at work. Give them no context though, just say that. See what happens. The law itself is not the source, of course, of one's Halloween head, only exposes it. We see that in verse 7. At the same time, the law is powerless to truly liberate one who is as the line from the old song goes, held in sin's dread sway. Where does I's help come from? And not just I, but everyone who consistently answers the challenge of I do, which is faithfulness. You notice the start of chapter 7 uses the imagery of marriage, so I intentionally say I do here. Instead, we answer with I don't and I can't. That kind of power, that power to save, won't come from the law. That's what Paul is making clear here. And he names that quite starkly in verse 24. Who will rescue me from this body of death? You read through the law, you know that contact with a dead body would render one unclean. It would render you ceremonially unclean. 
So Paul's recognition is that he and we, the audience here, are not only coming in contact with a dead body, we are the dead body. We're continually in contact with it. The devil doesn't like that line, so it's breaking up the microphone. Who will rescue me from this microphone of death? Pushing buttons on, it's like I know what I'm doing. All right, we're back. There's not much more to go, but we're back. So the question then comes here: Who's going to rescue us from such a dead body, our own dead body? Who's going to do that? And that's what Paul is pushing towards all along. He's pushing closer and closer and closer, further into that, because he recognizes, like his audience, that it puts us in a position where we're in an absolute catastrophe. And I write here in our conclusion here is. Q Tolkien. Of all the places the Q, J.R.R. Tolkien, we've arrived at that place. Now, if you're like any group of people that I have uh, served over the years, there's some folks here who just got really excited. <coughs> like, really excited. Like, like Klingon excited. Like, you went full Star Trek a hundred years ago excited. In March 1939, J.R.R. Tolkien gave a lecture at the University of St. Andrews on fairy stories. Just think of all the things you can give lectures on. It was later published, of course, as part of at least two collections, and in the lecture itself, Tolkien coined a new literary category. He called the literary category, because he said there wasn't words to describe it, I'm just gonna create my own. He called it a catastrophe. And instead of being an event that brings about suffering and damage, like a catastrophe would be, this catastrophe is a sudden and favorable resolution of events in a story. It's what we might call, when we look at fairy tales, or what he calls fairy stories, a happy ending, right? And so he talks about, from that sense, standpoint, Tolkien observed in his lecture that you catastrophes often denies in the face of much evidence, if you will, universal final defeat, and insofar is evangelium, giving a fleeting glimpse of joy, joy beyond the walls of the world, poignant as grief. Paul must have sensed as much as he writes this section of Romans. He must have sensed that in the midst of great catastrophe, that there was another category that existed outside of the moment and the experience that he was in. And that experience was one that there is joy that lies outside of the sorrow and the defeat and the despair. When he looked at himself and said, I can't be those things. It's only serving to diagnose who I am. It's not actually solving my situation. He came to recognize and see that there's something outside of me that comes and rescues and provides that salvation. He could see the catastrophe. He could see that happy ending. And what happens? He burst out in song. He's in the middle of talking about this woe, this I woes, and what does he do? It slips out of him. He's probably thinking, this ain't supposed to come out till chapter eight. <laughs> But he can't help himself. And it suddenly burst out there in verse 25. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. No longer a failing lawkeeper. Paul lets loose. And can we blame him? Can we blame him at this point? When we discover the truth of God's love. When we discover that God in Jesus Christ breaks the power of canceled sin. Sorry, another song reference. 
sets the prisoner free. Our tongue, too, is loosed. Our tongue is loose, and we let loose. And we desire, as the song goes, that oh, for a thousand tongues to sing. We, too, join that chorus. But you might be saying this morning, I'm not Jewish. I'm not Jewish. I've never tried to be a law keeper. I've never tried to subscribe to keeping the Torah. How does this apply to me? You've already spent my time here, Jimmy, telling me that the I isn't me, right? It's, it's talking about this, this representative group of folks that are trying to keep the law and recognize that they can't do it. So how does this, how does this help me? How does that do anything with me? Well, one of the things we find in modern culture in our lives as moderns is that we become slaves of our situation and slaves of ourselves. It may not be the Torah that we're trying to keep, but there is a standard that we uphold in our own lives. There's places in our hearts that God has placed there, a conscience, if you will, where we come to recognize that we can't even keep that standard. I might have the standard to say, I want to be an honest person. I think it's right to be honest. I think it's just to my fellow men and women that I come encounter with that I'm honest with them. But then I realize at some points along the path that sometimes I'm less than honest or not honest at all. That I violate that code. And I recognize that I'm not the person that I believe I'm supposed to be. We come with all kinds of different categories here. We can talk about our own lust. We can talk about money and greed. We can talk about power and control. And we can add all these things up and we begin to recognize that there's a law unto ourselves and we can't even keep that. That even in our best struggle, we still find ourselves violating ourselves and our own standard. And we too might ask the question, who would rescue me from this enslavement that I'm in? Who's going to rescue me from this body of death that I've created? Well, there is one answer. And Paul says, thanks be to God for Jesus Christ, who rescues us, who's in the business of taking people out of slavery and liberating them and welcome them to a new place, a place where they can enjoy a more promising present in an altogether different future, one that is more hopeful, one that does have hope. And next week, as we go into chapter eight, we're going to see just how much hope there is to be had. Thanks be to God. May we live in that place of hope this day and every day of our lives. Amen. Friends, let us pray together. Lord, we thank you for your great love for us. The love that's been poured out to us and given to us freely by Jesus Christ and poured out by the Spirit of God. So now as we ponder once more and continue to ponder those words, particularly as we prepare our hearts for coming to the table, we pray, Lord, that you would fill us all the more with that sense of your great love, that we be filled with your grace, and that we too would let loose, tongues let loose, singing praise as well, knowing that we have been freed, the chains and shackles are gone, that sin no longer has a power over us, but rather we have been empowered by the living spirit of God. We pray this in Jesus' name.